0: Pick Me Up, I'm Scared,
1: the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. Okay, Kenna, today we have kind of a heavy episode. (laughs) So, um, we were in high school when 9-11 happened. Yes. And what do you remember being the biggest difference, like, in society on the whole after
0: 9-11? You could not go... uh to the airport just to shop (laughs) um it was like oh my gosh it was like yeah a big there was okay patriotism was way more of a thing after that uh like everyone was just like so paranoid um I'm like, oh, George Bush era. Yeah, my aunt told me that she thought the terrorists were gonna
1: bomb Fashion Fair Mall in Fresno, California.
0: Oh my gosh, you heard all these rumors. Like, I'm from a small town in Colorado, and someone's like, they're going to bomb the Royal Gorge Bridge. I'm like, they are not. <laughs> also, like, I remember being, doing this as a report in my high school, being like, this, you know, because they're like, we need to invade Iraq because they did 9-11. I'm like, they did not do 9-11. That is a completely separate, thing and like did the whole you know did the whole like you know project and everyone's like um yeah but still we should um do that um it was gosh it was a weird time right yeah before definitely people were not as worried about it was like the matrix You know how the Matrix is set in like 1999? Yes. And they're like, this is what the world was like. It's so peaceful. I mean, even though it really wasn't. Right. But it was like, yeah, you could just walk into an airport and have lunch and I don't know. So I was thinking about that airplane thing.
1: Um, We talked about that in a previous episode and I was thinking about that. And I was also, I was thinking about the war on terror, which you mentioned, the Iraq component of that, which is arguably the most mismanaged and bizarre war in history. Right, which cost the US eight trillion dollars and killed nine hundred thousand people, including three hundred and sixty-three thousand civilians, potentially more, uh, while displacing thirty-seven million people. And I was thinking about um the hate crimes that a lot of immigrants and people of color in the US endured yeah, after nine eleven.
0: It was like really terrible. Like you just would hear people on TV saying like the wackish shit
1: yeah and i was thinking um about ice immigration and customs enforcement which of course didn't exist before 9-11 oh
0: yeah after 9-11 was a uh, homeland security that did not exist before yes
1: so you remember ice being founded i remember ice being founded and yeah after 9-11 the u.s basically wanted to be seen as having a swift and violent response to terrorism and, uh, you know, it was already kind of a problem because terrorism isn't, like, a specific place you can go to and, like, have a talk or launch an airstrike on it, right?
0: Yeah. Um, side note, I watched that McMillions documentary about the, um, you know, the McDonald's Monopoly game that was huge when you were kids. Apparently, it was a scam. Yes, and, I watched this, too. And the, re and... um Basically, there were all these FBI agents looking at it, and the reason why it didn't become a thing is because during like the tail end of it, nine eleven happened. So, ev all the like FBI investigations went to terrorism after that, and I was like, oh, that's so curious, because they were like, yeah, we used to be focused on like white collar co- crime and like financial fraud and stuff like that, and then we were all just moved to terrorism, and I was like how interesting that um that would be a precursor to like the 2008 crash right um where i'm like so everyone's just focused on this like one thing that doesn't do like that you know like they're not focused on stuff that would actually like help the economy i'm using air quotes but you cannot see me um when i yeah there's just like a but oh my god it's like I, it's coming back to me because at the time <laughs> I was like really like nerdy, like researching all about like this shit is so fucked up. Like all the like all, all the stuff that FBI is doing. They're like trying to like, you know, they're, you know, and being in a small town in Colorado, people are just like, what are you talking about? We love G-Dub.
1: Yeah, I remember this experience, too, because we used to go protest, protest the uh, Iraq war all the time. Me and my friends, we'd go out to all the protests and we'd get in fights with people. There were counter protesters who loved the Iraq war and it was a whole mess. And um, I definitely remember when ICE was founded, all of us were like, that doesn't sound like it's gonna be good. And uh, spoiler alert, it did not turn out to be good. So I wanted to do this episode about ICE specifically. Oh. <laughs> because we lived in an era before ICE. And I feel like lots of people think it's so entrenched in our current, um, like, government system that it could never be removed. And I also feel like in 2018, there was a big push where the abolish ICE movement was picking up steam. But then it kind of um, has moved away from the public eye. And yet I think we still do need to abolish ICE. So yes, I wanted to talk about that. But of course, you can't talk about ICE without talking about 9-11 because they're so uh, interconnected, right? So, you know, we had this, this war on terrorism that was happening. And, you know, there's no diplomat representing terrorism. Terrorism is a really broad term without a concrete meaning. So the U.S. had to enact all of these policies and procedures really, really quickly after 9-11 to make it look like we were having a decisive reaction to whomever had wronged us. And as shortly as September 16th, 2001, just five days after the 9-11 attacks, then President George W. Bush was already referencing a war on terrorism in public speeches to the U.S. So you kind of touched on this when you were talking about um, like the Iraq war and different components of the war on terrorism, which really is a broad term to describe like a lot of smaller military action, uh, but smaller also in air quotes, because smaller ended up being, you know, 20 year militaristic endeavors that spent a lot of money and killed a lot of people and displaced a lot of people. So I wanted to start talking about ICE by talking kind of, um, about 9-11 and, Out of the 19 men who hijacked airplanes on September 11th, uh, 15 were from Saudi Arabia, two were from the United Arab Emirates, and one was from Lebanon, and one was from Egypt originally, but had moved to Germany long before the attacks, where he met two of the other 9-11 pilots who had also moved to Germany. Uh, They were actually known as the Hamburg cell. So we're looking at four to five different countries minimum kind of involved if you wanted to instead... um, take a look at the nationalities of the people who did this, right? So you've got oh, kind of where they're born. You got this whole Germany thing going into effect. And you got Saudi Arabia, which was the country with the most recruits, but they officially condemned the attack, saying they had nothing to do with them as a nation. And then you got George W. Bush kind of standing there at a podium going, "We're going to fight the terrorists." And you're like, "Okay. How?" You know? And and this was kind of the political climate when we were in high school when this mm-hmm. happened. So, who to attack in order to assert the US dominance in the wake of this tragedy? By late September 2001, uh, Bush had declared that, quote, our enemy is a radical network of terrorists and every government that supports them. Uh, and that's pretty vague, right? I remember acutely, it didn't make sense to a whole lot of people, myself included, when he said that. You're like, well, what? Who, though? Give mm-hmm. me something specific. And even Richard B. Myers, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, thought that this was too broad and bizarre of a war to even wage. He critiqued it. He's like, "What are, I don't understand what this is. It's kind of like the war on drugs. What does that mean? Yeah. And in the end, the focus fell on countries who the U.S. believed to be associated in any way with, oh my God, I'm going to say it the way George W. Bush says it because that's what I heard on the news all the time. <laughs> Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda, I believe is the cor- correct pronunciation. Oh yeah, but you al-
0: always heard it by Al Qaeda, G Dub, yeah, G W as we called him. Yeah, yes. you'd be like Al Qaeda. So unfortunately, uh, I have probably internalized
1: a lot of that, and will probably also be saying Al Qaeda a lot. And so, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I apologize uh, as well. Yes. Um. So, but this is the group that had taken credit for the attacks, and the first country that the U.S. decided um, was associated with Al Qaeda was Afghanistan. So following the attacks, we started to hear a lot about Osama bin Laden, who was the then leader of al-Qaeda, which was a group that was also in like a like a tacit alliance with the Taliban. Like he had also been part of the Taliban. Al-Qaeda had like pledged their uh, allegiance to the Taliban. And you heard all these words a lot on the news, but it was kind of confusing and amorphous and kind of hard to get like a, a linear idea of what was going on. He was just kind of like, I remember thinking of him as like this malevolent evil entity in the sky to justify whatever egregious war crimes the U.S. went forward and committed after 9-11. Yes, it was like if you had a real
0: life supervillain.
1: Yes, he was our supervillain and anything bad that the United States did in another country, you'd be like, well, Osama bin Laden, though.
0: Exactly. Yeah, it's so wild to think about now, like just how ubiquitous... Like, that was. Yeah, the fear of Osama bin Laden. Yeah. And the history
1: of Osama bin Laden is actually really interesting. Do you know much about the CIA Osama bin Laden thing?
0: I, I did in high school. I was like, all this stuff! <laughs> I'm like the meme with the guy from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia with, like, the strings. and But it's, it's been many years. Okay, well, I'll give you a refresher because I refreshed myself today.
1: Uh, okay, so in 1986, we had CIA chief. Uh, William Casey he was in deep with the Cold War against the Soviet Union and he had convinced US Congress to provide guerrilla fighters in Islamic countries with American anti aircraft missiles so that they could shoot down Soviet planes and also uh, he thought we could provide these guerrilla fighters with US advisors to train them on how to use the equipment so congress liked this and then uh the cia britain's mi6 and the isi which is pakistan's inner services intelligence agency agreed on a joint plan to launch guerrilla attacks into the soviet socialist republics of tajikistan and uzbekistan where soviet troops in afghanistan received their supplies So an ISI leader named Gulbuddin Hikmitar was in charge of this plan, which officially launched in March of 1987, when small teams attacked uh, villages in Tajikistan from Afghanistan. CIA chief Casey thought that these attacks went super well, so he made a trip to Pakistan and then subsequently crossed into Afghanistan to review these fighters in person. Given the success of the mission, Casey also committed CIA support to a long standing ISI initiative to recruit Muslim fighters from around the world to come to Pakistan and fight with the Afghan guerrilla fighters, which the ISI had been doing since 1982. While the ISI's goal was to center Islamic unity in Pakistan, the US's goal was to demonstrate that the entire Muslim world was fighting against the Soviet Union alongside Afghanistan and the United States. Basically, the U.S. wanted to show that everyone like, hated communism or whatever. Mm-hmm. So between 1982 to 1992, 35,000 people came from 43 different countries to join and train under these Afghani guerrilla fighters, which now had CIA backing and support. Additionally, tens of thousands of more came to train in Pakistan along the Afghan border. So in total, around 100,000 people came into contact with these ISI and CIA combo training programs. Eager for the fall of the Soviet empire, the CIA was really comfortable pumping radicalizing propaganda through these training centers. As Zbigniew Brzezinski, a former U.S. national security advisor, explained, quote, what was more important in the worldview of history, a few stirred up Muslims or the end of the Cold War, end quote. And one of the young people who came to these training centers was... In fact, Osama bin Laden. And he was the son of an extremely wealthy Yemeni uh, construction magnate with royal ties. The ISI had wanted to recruit royalty for their cause, but they couldn't quite find any like fancy princes who wanted to come rough it in the desert. So Osama bin Laden was pretty close. He was close enough for them. And throughout the 80s, Bin Laden excelled throughout these training programs and built connections, taking part in ambushes against Soviet troops at the United States behest. In 1986, he helped build a CIA funded armed storage depot a training facility and medical center for these guerrilla fighters deep under the mountains of Afghanistan, close to the Pakistan border. And eventually Bin Laden even set up his own training camp. He uh, became disillusioned with the US though, due to their role in the Gulf War in the 90s. After Iraq invaded Kuwait, bin Laden petitioned the royal family to make their own defense force from Afghan war veterans. Remember, he came from a pretty high up family that had royal connections. However, instead, the royal family invited 540,000 US troops to come assist. Bin Laden criticized this action, thinking it was better to have Muslim fighters in the region. In 1992, he left and headed for Sudan to support the Islamic revolution there already underway. However, disgusted by the American victory over Iraq and the Arab rulers who allowed the Americans to maintain a military presence in the Gulf, he criticized the Saudi royal family persistently and so aggressively, in fact, that they revoked his citizenship in 1994, which is a pretty uncommon thing for them to do. So in August, 1996, bin Laden issued his first declaration of jihad against the Americans who were occupying Saudi Arabia. And by now the CIA was starting to monitor him specifically a little more closely. So you've got bin Laden, who had been trained and taught in CIA-backed guerrilla militant camps, and now you've got the CIA looking at him going, uh, maybe we did a bad. And a U.S. State Department report in August 1996 noted that bin Laden was, quote, one of the most significant financial sponsors of Islamic extremist activities in the world, end quote. The report said that bin Laden was financing terrorist camps, is how they described them, in Somalia, Egypt, Sudan, Yemen, and Afghanistan. But these camps are really similar to, obviously, the CIA camps that he himself had gone through. And in April 1996, President Clinton signed the Anti-Terrorism Act, which allowed the U.S. to block assets to terrorist organizations. It was first used to block bin Laden's access to his fortune of an estimated $250 to $300 million dollars. And a few months later, Egyptian intelligence declared that bin Laden was training 1,000 militants, a second generation of Arab Afghans, to bring about an Islamic revolution in Arab countries. So in 1997, the CIA tried to take over this operation and oust bin Laden from Afghanistan completely. But uh, they failed, and it sounds like honestly it just made him even angrier. So by 1998, bin Laden had uh, considerable influence in the Taliban, and on February 23rd, 1998, all of the groups associated with al-Qaeda, a group led by bin Laden, which pledged its allegiance to the Taliban in the 90s, um, and the Taliban's kind of been like, oh, we're not really acknowledging this allegiance, especially in current day, issued a manifesto stating, quote, For more than seven years, the U.S. has been occupying the lands of Islam in the holiest of places, the Arabian Peninsula, plundering its riches, dictating to its rulers, humiliating its people, terrorizing its neighbors, and turning its bases in the peninsula into a spearhead through which to fight the neighboring Muslim people. The ruling to kill all Americans and their allies, civilians, and military is an individual duty for every Muslim who can do it in any country in which it's possible to. And this was the scene that was set for the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Towers here in US, which killed approximately 3,000 people and for which he took credit. So less than one month after the 9-11 attacks, Afghanistan with a large Al-Qaeda presence became the first focus for the US's war on terror. And the United States invaded Afghanistan in order to find Osama bin Laden. The war in Afghanistan, as we now know, lasted 20 years and is widely critiqued as being extremely mismanaged and inefficient. When US troops finally withdrew just this year, the Taliban once again seized power almost immediately. So, this is the political atmosphere in the US and globally during the early 2000s. And in November 2002, following 9 11 and in the midst of a growing global war on terror, the US passed the Homeland Security Act, which created the US Department of Homeland Security in tandem with the Patriot Act. And all of this happened when uh, I was maybe 14 or 15 years old. Yeah, so yeah, I, I, yeah, I would have been one year older. (laughs) Right. So now this agency was created with the goal of theoretically preventing another 9-11 from happening. And one of the new agencies in the Department of Homeland Security was Immigration and Customs Enforcement, aka ICE. The other two bureaus were Customs and Border Patrol and Citizenship and Immigration Services. And you can see kind of from the bureau names alone that the big focus of this idea of keeping America safe was immigration. And immigration control has always been rooted in racism in the United States. I found this little quote from the nation that kind of summarized a brief history of some egregious um, immigration actions that were founded on racist ideas. So it says, in the late 19th century, federal officials had the cover of newly enacted laws to target Chinese migrants with imprisonment and expulsion. After the Border Patrol was created in 1924, the targets changed, but racist violence continued. Jefferson Davis Milton, its first officer, was named after his father's friend, the president of the Confederacy. One of Milton's colleagues, Charles Askins, claimed to have killed 27 people, not counting blacks and Mexicans. That is his words. Sorry, I said it that, that way. Both men are still celebrated on the Border Patrol's website to this day. In the 1930s, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, disbanded when ICE was created, partnered with local officials to raid La Placita, the iconic center of Mexican Los Angeles, arresting and deporting hundreds of people. In the 1940s, the Border Patrol sent special Mexican deportation parties, that's what they were called, to cities throughout the United States. And in the 1950s, the agency launched, and I'm sorry I have to say this because it does include a slur, Operation Wetback was the name of this. Oh. A notoriously racist deportation initiative. The list goes on. And that's the end of this quote from uh, The Nation. An ICE official on Immigration Nation, a Netflix documentary released last year, said, we don't arrest many German people. And I thought this was really interesting that he said this, because as we all know, um, you could just have easily had tied Germany in with a list of countries involved in 9-11, right? We had a whole Hamburg sect of uh, the people who hijacked the planes, right? There was a cell, but um, we didn't go after the one white country involved, which is pretty telling. And this idea about Germany, for example, is a pretty good example because it perfectly encapsulates the racism built into our deportation policies from 2017 to 2019. For example, there were 26,000 German immigrants violating their visas and ice deported less than 1% of them. Why am I not surprised? Exactly. The the role of anti-immigrant xenophobia and racism in immigration control has always reflected the cultural fear of other that's biggest in the American zeitgeist at whatever moment we're in. And it shifts. Following 9-11, the U.S. doubled down on its xenophobia and fear of other against all immigrants, but especially against Muslim people. And it is hard to explain if you didn't grow up like conscious during this time period in the U.S., but the streets here in the United States were a veritable war zone for anyone who looked vaguely Middle Eastern in any capacity. The FBI reported that the number of anti-Muslim hate crimes rose from 28 in 2000 to 481 in 2001, and that's a 17-fold increase, and that's just what was
0: reported. Um, What's wild is that like literally on the news, like you would see mainstream people being like, we need to have internment camps like they did for the Japanese during World War Two. Like I swear that was like on Fox News. Like people were like talking about that type of stuff. Like out I actually in the remember open. that too. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. Um. So I'm gonna get into some details, not because uh, I want to be egregious, but just because I want to explain just how horrifying the conditions were for um immigrants and. Muslim people living in the United States after this. It was really bad. So the ADC reported over 600 September 11th related hate crimes committed against Arabs, Muslim, Muslims, and those perceived to be Arab or Muslims, such as Sikhs and South Asians. In Chicago, the police department reported only four anti-Muslim or anti-Arab hate crimes during the year of 2000. And in the three months of September through November 2001, that number jumped to 51, just in three months. And again, that's just what was reported. In Los Angeles uh, County, there were 12 hate crimes against persons of Middle Eastern descent in the year 2000 compared to 188 in 2001. And in Florida, the attorney general directly attributed the 24.5% increase in the total number of hate crimes registered for the year 2001 to September 11th related bias. The primary targets of these attacks were Muslim women who wore hijabs and Sikh men who wore turbans, who were misidentified by white American aggressors as being Arab or Muslim. And mosques were also aggressively attacked. Uh, A big trigger warning coming up, I'm about to describe a lot of really horrifying Islamophobia and racist violence. In Tulsa, Oklahoma and Seattle, Washington, taxi dispatch services noted that after September 11th, they received threatening calls saying that their Muslim and Arab taxi driver workers would be killed. Balbir Singh Sodhi, a 49-year-old turban Sikh and father of three, was shot and killed while planting flowers at his gas station on September 15, 2002. Police officials told Human Rights Watch that hours before the crime, his alleged killer, Frank Roque, had bragged at a local bar of his intention to, I'm going to include a quote, and it will again include a slur, and I am very sorry, kill the ragheads responsible for September 11th. In addition to shooting Saudi three times before driving away, Roque also allegedly shot into the home of an Afghani-American and at two Lebanese gas station clerks. The Maricopa County Prosecutor's Office was due to try uh, Roque for Saudi's murder shortly after that. And on October 4th, 2001, Mark Stroman shot and killed Vasudev Patel, a 49-year-old Indian and father of two, while Patel was working at a convenience store in Mesquite, Texas. A store video camera recorded the murder, uh, allowing law enforcement detectives to identify Strowman as the killer. He said during a television interview that anger over the September 11th attacks had caused him to attack any store owner who appeared to be Muslim. He further stated during the interview, quote, we're at war. I did what I had to do. I did it to retaliate against those who retaliated against us, end quote. In addition to killing Patel, Strowman also shot and killed Wakwar Hassan on September 15th, 2001 and shot Rais Udin, a gas station attendant, blinding him. He uh, was tried and convicted of capital murder for killing Patel. And the second person um, that we mentioned, Waqar Hassan, a 46-year-old Pakistani and father of two, was killed while cooking hamburgers at his grocery store near Dallas, Texas, on September 15, 2001. Although no money was taken from the store, police in Dallas initially believed that his killing uh, was due to a robbery because he had been robbed twice earlier that year. His family, however, uh, knew his murder was a hate crime because nothing was stolen by the assailant and the murder occurred so soon after September 11th. His family also pointed out that customers visiting the store after September 11th subjected him to ethnic and religious slurs and the case remained unsolved until Mark Stroman admitted to killing him to a fellow prison inmate in January 2002. On September 17th, 2001, Ali Almansoop, a 44-year-old Yemeni Arab, was shot and killed in his home in Lincoln Park, Michigan, after being awoken from his sleep by Brent David Seaver. At the time of his murder, um, Almansoop was dating Seaver's ex-girlfriend. However, immediately before the killing, Seaver said that he was angry about the September 11th terrorist attacks. Almansoop pleaded that he had nothing to do with the attacks, but Seaver uh, shot him anyway. He acknowledged to police investigators that he killed Alman soup in part because of anger related to September 11th and prosecutors chose to prosecute the matter as a murder rather than a bias motivated murder because uh, they decided the motive was more the ex girlfriend situation, even though very clearly and the killer acknowledged himself, it was based heavily in uh, September 11th related bias. On September 29th, 2001, Abdo Ali Ahmed, a 51-year-old Yemeni, Arab, and Muslim, and father of eight, was shot and killed while working at his convenience store in Reedley, California, uh, which is pretty close to where I was raised. Um, Cash in two registers and rolled coins inside an open safe were left untouched. In addition, Ahmed's gun, which he kept for protection, reportedly remained in its usual spot, indicating that he may not have felt he was in mortal danger. Two days before his murder, he had found a note on his car windshield which stated, we are going to kill all of you fucking Arabs. On September 15th, 2001, Adele Karas, a 48 year old Arab and Coptic Christian and father of three was shot and killed at his convenience store in San Gabriel, California. According to press reports, his wife, Rhonda Karas, believed he was murdered because he was mistaken for a Muslim. She points out that he had no money uh, taken from the cash register and he also had a thick wad of bills in his pocket that nobody touched. Local police told Human Rights Watch that they do not believe his murder was bias motivated because there's no evidence to indicate anti-Arab or anti-Muslim bias. The murder remains unsolved at the time of his writing, but his wife still maintains it was due to a September 11th bias as a hate crime. And... Ali W. Ali, a 66-year-old Somali Muslim, died nine days after being punched in the head while standing at a bus stop in Minneapolis, Minnesota, on October 15, 2002. According to Press reports, the only known witness to the attack saw the assailant walk up to Ali, punch him, stand over him, and then walk away. His son and Somali community members attribute the uh, an- attack and anger against Ali to a front page local newspaper article that had appeared two days before the attack, which said that Somalis in Minneapolis had given money to a Somali terrorist group with links to Osama bin Laden. After originally finding that Ali had died of natural causes, the Hennepin County Medical Examiner's office on January 8th, 2002, instead ruled Ali's death a homicide. And his family members regard his murder as a hate crime. So obviously um, these are just some of the stories. There was also a number of horrifying assaults that occurred. And again, I don't want to be gratuitous, but I think it's really important to remember these stories to really understand what these ideas of xenophobia and anti-other and anti-immigrant rhetoric um, do to people in their very real lives and their communities. So I'm gonna read a few more of them. They're all awful. On September 30th, 2001, Swaran Kaur-Bullar, a Sikh woman, was attacked by two men who stabbed her in the head twice as her car was idling at a red light in San Diego. The men shouted at her, this is what you get for what you've done to us, and I'm going to slash your throat before attacking her. As another car approached the traffic light, the men sped off. Uh, she survived, but she says she definitely would have been killed if the other car had not appeared. On September 12th, 2001, Faiza Ajaz, a Pakistani woman, was standing outside a mall in Huntington, New York, waiting for her husband to pick her up from work. And according to press reports, Adam Lang, a 76-year-old man sitting in his car outside the mall, allegedly put his car in drive and started driving towards her. She was able to avoid the car by jumping out of the way and running into the mall. Then he jumped out of his car and screamed at her that he was, quote, doing this for my country and was going to kill her. On June 18, 2002, FK, an American Muslim who wears a hijab, was allegedly uh, assaulted by a woman in a drugstore in Houston, Texas. Before assaulting FK, the woman told her that she had learned about, quote, you people over the last 10 months and doesn't trust a single damn one of you. Before FK could get away from the woman, she slammed FK to the floor, began pulling at her headscarf, and it ended up choking her. Uh, FK told the woman she could not breathe, but the woman kept pulling at the headscarf. FK then pulled off her own headscarf in violation of her religious obligations in a desperate effort to alleviate the choking. The woman then dragged FK by her hair to the front of the store. And when police arrived, the woman was holding FK by her ponytail on the sidewalk and told police she was making a citizen's arrest. Carnell uh, Singh, a Sikh man who owns a motel in SeaTac, Washington, In mid-October, 2001, John Bethel, a local vagrant uh, who sometimes came into Singh's motel for coffee and food told him, you better go back to your country, we're coming to kick your ass. A few days later on October 19th, Bethel entered Singh's motel and shouted, you're still here, go back to Allah before hitting Singh with a metal cane while he stood behind the counter of the motel lobby. Uh, Singh bled profusely from the blow and spent half a day in the hospital and required 10 stitches on his head. So, you know, these are just some stories obviously, and there was also uh, extremely aggressive racial profiling going on at this time. uh, In other ways, there were widespread reports of people being fired from their jobs due to 9-11 related discrimination, people barred from going on airplanes, many other acts of prejudice. Uh, One man, Ali, a 35-year-old Lebanese American living in California, says he had never gone through uh, airport security as an adult without being pulled aside for an extra check after 9-11. Once while flying within the country from North Carolina, he found himself unable to check in at a kiosk. So he went to an agent to ask for help. And when she pulled up his info, she told him that he was on a no-fly list, but she couldn't tell him why. So he had to apply with the DHS to have his name removed. It Took months and months. He was not able to travel within the country via airplane for months. And eventually he was removed, but nobody ever explained why he was put on to begin with. And he was a US citizen who worked as a software engineer. So these are just reported incidents, obviously. But colloquially, it seemed everyone in the United States knew somebody who had been targeted in these xenophobic, racist, and Islamophobic hate crimes. And this was the atmosphere of post-9-11 United States as ICE was being formed.
0: Yeah, it really, really fucking awful. And like, to go along with that, something I just remembered is suddenly flags everywhere. Yes. Never seen so many... American flags in my entire life before then.
1: Right. And the American flag, you know, has always been associated with white supremacy, obviously. Uh, But at this time, it felt more acute. It got to the point where, you know, you'd see American flags and you'd be like, is this a symbol of white supremacy in this person's front yard? Like, are people at danger if they walk in front of this person's house? Because the
0: violence was just so prevalent. Well, it's just like everybody had like a flag. Like, even if you were like an alternative person or just like... Oh my gosh, if you said anything against America, you know, remember like uh the uh Dixie Chicks, now the Chicks. Right. Um they said something about being ashamed of America and they in the 1990s version got basically their careers ruined.
1: Right. Um, So all of this was happening. ICE was being formed. And you remember the newly formed Department of Homeland Security had those three branches, but all of them were just based on immigration. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Department of Homeland Security didn't actually become operational until March 1st, 2003. But right away, ICE was granted a lot of power, uh, which seemed to institutionalize and grant legitimacy to these racist, Islamophobic, anti-immigrant sentiments that were ravaging the country. So previously, immigration had been handled by the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which was a part of the Department of Justice and worked closely with the Department of Labor. A separate force called Border Patrol monitored the borders. However, working within the Patriot Act, the new Department of Homeland Security, or DHS, was given far-reaching powers of surveillance and detention. Here's a quote from Mizu Aizeki, Deputy Director of the Immigrant Defense Project, a New York-based legal support and advocacy group. One of the key things that happened after the founding of DHS, is it really turbocharged the US apparatus to detain and deport people. So where the Department of Customs and Border Protection was tasked with patrolling America's borders, ICE was tasked with finding undocumented immigrants already inside the country and just deporting them. That was the job. And following ICE's creation, uh, deportations or removals of immigrants living in the US spiked, doubling from around 211,000 in 2003 to a peak of more than 432,000 by 2013. And the removals were often incidental. Uh, One man named Hassan had been living in the U.S. for three years when 9-11 happened. He'd moved to Pasadena, California from Tunisia on a tourist visa, but had gotten a job working night shifts at a local motel. He had a driver's license in the U.S. He was seeking to abstain a student visa that would allow him to stay in the country legally. In the summer of 2002, though, Hassan stopped at a gas station on his way to work. While he was there, he says, a fight broke out among a nearby group of men who had thought he thought they might've been Hispanic. They were definitely men of color, but they were not from the same ethnic background as him. The police arrived and arrested everyone there, including him, even though he had nothing to do with the fight, and he suspects he was picked up just because of the color of his skin. It was similar to the other men's. And after checking his papers, the police brought Hassan to a detention center, and with the, within days, he was deported to Tunisia, where he still lives as of 2018. Uh, He says, I later found out that my Lebanese boss, who owned a few small businesses in the area, was deported as well. The events of 9-11 did not help. So basically, while ICE acknowledged that they couldn't have ICE agents everywhere, they could work in tandem with local police, who were everywhere. Creating an environment where any encounter with local police over something as minor as a traffic violation could now send uh, undocumented immigrants into the deportation pipeline. So compared to 1980, deportations after 9-11 had increased nearly tenfold, and at their peak in 2013, it was 40-fold. According to France 24, quote, this system became further entrenched not only under Republican presidents George W. Bush and Donald Trump, but also under Democrat Barack Obama, whose administration vastly expanded the Secure Communities Program, first piloted by the Bush administration in 2008. The program allowed jails to submit fingerprints of anyone arrested, not only to federal criminal databases, but also to immigration agencies like ICE, leading to more than 500,000 deportations in the decade after it was enacted. The Homeland Security era has also seen immigration authorities adopt a plethora of new surveillance technologies, including facial recognition and collection of biometric data, such as fingerprints, iris scans, and even DNA information. Some of these technologies were used in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan before being implemented at home. Military weapons have also found their way back into the streets of U.S. cities in the hands of immigration enforcement. In 2019, a division of ICE took to the streets in Queens in an armored personnel carrier to conduct an arrest. In 2020, an agent was filmed with what appeared to be an assault rifle outside a building in the Bronx where ICE was reportedly conducting a raid." Uh, This may be why many of ICE's critics refer to the program as America's Gestapo, with seemingly unchecked power far removed even from its ill-informed intentions to, quote, prevent acts of terrorism by targeting the people, money, and materials that support terrorist and criminal activities, as described by the DOJ in 2004. As Quartz explains, The focus was meant to be on crimes like money laundering and human trafficking, the way terrorists could get anything from smallpox to suitcase bombs into the country. But as early as 2004, even conservative groups were questioning whether or not ICE even made sense. Like in 2004, the Conservative Heritage Foundation, which is not progressive in the least, suggested ICE be merged out of existence by combining it with the new Border Force, Customs and Border Protection. And in 2005, the Department of Homeland Security's Inspector General concurred in a 175 page report that there was little reason for ICE to have been created at all, saying, quote, we could not find any documentation that fully explains the rationale and purpose behind ICE's composition. One senior official offered the following explanation. ICE was established with not a focus on supporting a particular mission, but on building an institutional foundation large enough to justify a
0: new organization. Wow, it's like a bureaucracy frosting on the bureaucracy cake.
1: Yes. And, and or
0: more, is it the cake? It's both. <laughs> ah! Yeah, I think that the
1: um, the Department of Homeland Security is the cake and ICE is the icing. Oh, terrible. Right. I know, it's terrible. Ugh. Um, So we're ICE to just focus on immigration fraud, employee sanctions, and removing dangerous people who are illegally already in the country – It would be a really small agency, that same report noted. But now, ICE has more than 20,000 law enforcement and support personnel in more than 400 offices in the United States and around the world. They also have an annual budget of $10.4 billion, which is approximately half of the annual budget HUD estimates it would take to end homelessness in America. Of course. Most of this budget goes to detention and removal operations. This share of the budget has increased greatly since 2009 when Congress authorized funding for ICE detention centers. As ICE has grown, the U.S.'s immigrant enemy has also shifted, and in the era of the Trump presidency, immigration from Mexico and South America became the new convenient enemy. ICE currently maintains over 40,000 beds for people who attempt to gain entry into the U.S. illegally, working with private contractors like GEO Group and CoreCivic, and most of these are located along the southern border of the United States. If you listen to our episode on prisons, these names might sound familiar because they're the two largest private for-profit prison groups in the country, meaning ICE is now working with them to operate their own de facto prison system. GEO Group and CoreCivic both made about a quarter of their revenue from ICE contracts in 2017. And ICE estimates that the cost to the US taxpayer per bed is about $126 per day, though the Government Accountability Office actually thinks that figure might be too low. As of October 1st, 2021, ICE has 22,129 people held in these detention centers, 75.6% of whom have no criminal record whatsoever. Most detainees are held in Texas, uh, around 4,000, Louisiana, a little under 2,000, and Arizona, around 1,500. While these detention centers came under fire in 2018 for inhumane conditions, not much has been done to rectify them. Instead, this crisis seems to have just moved out of the news cycle. The number of people who died in ICE custody more than doubled in the fiscal year of 2020, which ended on September 30th. 21 people died in 2020, the highest death toll in ICE custody in 15 years, with more than a third of those deaths related to COVID-19. People are still made to sleep on small mattresses on the ground, very thin, with silver emergency blankets, sectioned off with plastic, ostensibly to slow the spread of COVID in tight quarters, but each plastic room has dozens of people altogether anyhow. COVID has only exacerbated a trend in the poor treatment of people in these centers. In 2011, Irene Bemenga was given the incorrect dosages of her medication after only 12 days at Albany County Corrections Facility, according to the immigration advocates. She died at age 29 and an investigation into her death revealed that she had submitted multiple health services requests to correct the dosage of her medication, but the facility's medical staff had repeatedly failed to respond. According to a 2018 report from Human Rights Watch, American Civil Liberties Union, Detention Watch Network, and National Immigrant Justice Center, poor medical treatment contributed to more than half of the deaths reported in ICE custody between November, uh, December 2015 and April 2017. Additionally, in May of this year, a DHS document indicated that more than 500 unaccompanied migrant children and teens had been held in detention centers for more than 10 days in violation of a policy that said they should be removed within 72 hours. A federal judge recently ordered the release of children from three family residential centers, citing the imminent danger of COVID-19 exposure if they were to remain in detention. And another judge asked ICE to release these children's parents. ICE wants to release the children, but keep their parents in detention, carrying on with the family separations at the border that physicians and DHS whistleblowers who have warned cause physical and psychological harm to children in detention, also have severe health threats to immigrants posed by the rapid spread of COVID-19 in detention. Inflated private contract budgets might help explain why ICE's budget is higher than that of TSA, FEMA, and the Secret Service, despite not providing adequate services. Whoa. And most of the personnel is now tasked with locating, arresting, detaining, and removing undocumented immigrants. The agency's 1,100 attorneys and 300 staff under them also prosecute the government's immigration cases each year. Less than half of the agents are even assigned with upholding the original stated goal of ICE, which was tracking terrorism and transnational crime syndicates in the U.S. and around the world. For the rest of the employees at ICE, the job is a nationwide manhunt to capture nonviolent average people who have been living, working, and paying taxes in the U.S. for decades without incident, contributing to the economy, and building a life built on the myth of the American dream. Mothers and fathers are arrested while getting their kids ready for school. Well-intentioned immigrants with slow-moving cases are arrested when showing up to their regularly scheduled meetings with immigration officials. One woman, Rosa, survived a xenophobic anti-immigrant domestic terrorism attack when a white man opened fire in an El Paso Walmart in 2019 trying to kill brown people. She survived only being deported after being arrested in a routine traffic stop for a broken taillight. Mm -hmm. In 2019, in Mississippi, ICE officials arrested 680 people in the largest worksite raid ever in a single state. Children were left at school with nobody to pick them up and no clue what happened to their parents. In 2020, a tourist was shot in the face by an ICE agent while visiting his mother at her Brooklyn home. Several HSI agents who deal with ICE's original mission of terrorism, weapons, and crime syndicates complain that the agency's high-profile anti-immigration work has made their jobs impossible, reporting that ICE's reputation is so bad that local law enforcement won't cooperate with them at all. And you know it has to be bad if the cops won't work with them, right? Oh, God. If it's too bad for the cops, like, wow. Uh, State and local law officials are frustrated, people in ICE are frustrated, and other federal agencies are frustrated because of the obsession with immigration enforcement and particularly the expansion of efforts targeting non-criminal unauthorized immigrants, says John Cohen, a former acting undersecretary of DHS who has over 30 years of experience in law enforcement and homeland security. While the Biden administration has made a point to say that things are changing and that they are only targeting people arrested and convicted of serious crimes, the increased budget and behavior of ICE officials this year has not reflected this. Some people in the DHS have noted, that ICE officials have gone rogue and continue to operate just as they did under the Trump administration and before, deporting people as often as they please anytime they come into contact with someone, which is all too possible given the far reach the agency has. And this increased focus on immigration does not, you guessed it, make us any safer, healthier, or happier in the US. Common anti immigrant sentiments claim that immigration increases crime and drug use and weakens the economy. However, time and time again, data shows that this is simply not the case. One study alone found that undocumented immigrants have substantially lower crime rates than native-born citizens and legal immigrants across a range of felony offenses. Relative to undocumented immigrants, US-born citizens are over two times more likely to be arrested for violent crimes, two and a half times more likely to be arrested for drug crimes, and over four times more likely to be arrested for property crimes. As for the economy, immigrants added $2 trillion to the U.S. GDP in 2016 and over $450 billion to state, local, and federal taxes in 2018. In 2018, after immigrants spent billions of dollars on state and local and federal taxes, they were left with $1.2 trillion in spending power, which they used to purchase goods and services, stimulating local business economy uh, and activity, since we all know the backbone of the U.S. economy is consumer spending. Proposed cuts to our legal immigration system would have devastating effects on our economy, decreasing the GDP by 2% over 20 years, shrinking growth by 12.5%, and cutting 4.6 million jobs. Rust Belt states in particular would be hit uh, very hard as they rely on immigration to stabilize their population and revive economies. This includes undocumented immigrants who alone contribute roughly $11.74 billion a year in state and local taxes, including more than $7 billion in sales and excise taxes, $3.6 billion in property taxes, and $1.1 billion in personal income taxes. These billions of tax dollars fund our schools, hospitals, emergency services, highways, and other essential services. These revenues would increase by $2.18 billion annually if undocumented immigrants were given legal status as part of an immigration reform package. Additionally, immigrants make enormous contributions to social security. If current legal immigration levels were cut by 50%, the social security fund would lose $1.5 trillion in revenue over just the next 75 years. Economists tend to agree that free immigration, is good for the economy. Yet in the US, relatively few citizens, just 21%, according to a 2018 poll, would welcome an open border immigration policy. And many economists find this perplexing. Since open borders make the most sense in terms of public safety and economic opportunity for a country, the only reason people seem to be hung up on this issue of immigration at all is because of a government and media backed propaganda machine trying to convince us all that the other is the enemy. At the end of the day, ICE is a broken agency we didn't need to begin with, and no amount of reform is going to fix that. Uh, So, Kenna, what do you think about ICE? What do you think of all of
0: Um, Obviously, fuck ICE. (laughs) Yeah. So fucked up. It's so... It is, I think, a common theme that we've had during these podcast episodes, where when... with presented with information, such as, you know, immigration actually helps the economy, or um, actually austerity is bad. It's good to give people money to give the economy that people still choose to believe the opposite, which I think is just, you know, like a common human thing. You're like, why? Why do you think that? And, you know, is it media? Is it people want to trust you know trust in the story of America air quotes America and don't want to disbelieve it because it would just be too sad and depressing or I I just wonder why when presented with these facts people still choose to believe things like oh we need ice or something like that
1: I think the thing is that you have actual facts right um like the thing about how immigration actually helps your economy. Um, like that's a thing most economists agree on. And many economists are like, yeah, open borders realistically would probably be best for the country. But you have these facts and they're presented alongside just um, like bad faith opinions that like no immigrants equal bad as though they're both equal footing. Like they're on equal footing as opinions about the effects of immigration.
0: Yeah, it's gosh, it's like in in the news now, they're like, they they treat something like that as if it's two sides of the same coin where they'd be like, some people believe the earth is flat. Some scientists say the earth is round. Who, like, let's have a debate. It's like, there is no debate. Right. And, and it's like a false debate. Yeah, I think
1: that's the same thing that happens with stuff like this. And I mean, it's pretty easy to see why, um, because people do benefit from making like the working class turn on each other and hate each other right rather than rising up it's the same thing kind of we saw after bacon's rebellion when we did the episode about prisons mm-hmm. and how um people in power got really afraid when they saw that white and black servants worked together during bacon's rebellion and burnt down the Capitol, you know mm-hmm. and then they were like "Well, we got to set up some differences between them we got to set up a a different class to further divide them. And I, I don't want to be like a class reductionist. Like I don't think everything comes down to class, obviously, but I do think people in power benefit from upholding ideas of racism and xenophobia and fear of the other in order to keep the working class divided. Definitely. Um, it's easy for your boss to say, Oh, well, wages are low because the immigrants are taking your jobs, mm-hmm. rather than say, you know, wages are low because I'm deliberately underpaying you all so I can maximize the profit that goes into my pocket at the end of the quarter, or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's a, a convenient lie for people in power to cling to, and people in power usually have the most access to the media. So it's in their best interest to repeat this as though there's two sides to this idea mm-hmm. about if immigration is good or bad for our country, when in reality, there's one side. It's, it's good for the country, or it's neutral at worst and good at best, and then, you know, the other side is a, a convenient lie that they can use as a scapegoat to avoid taking accountability for the ways in which they have ruined the economy, the people mm-hmm. in power. Or they have criminalized drug use in a way that has catastrophic effects on especially low-income communities, but everybody. And I think, like, that's that's the myth and that's the benefit of the myth. the The myth is that there's two sides to every story. The benefit of the myth is that by believing there could potentially be two sides, it upholds the power of people in power.
0: Yeah, it, it. I agree with what you said. It's just like it's, it it's to the benefit of the people who are in power, mainly those who have like you know money and.
1: Right. I think also like a thing that's interesting to me is how the enemy is always shifting, mm-hmm. right? And it's like. Okay, when ICE was created, the enemy was Islam. Islamophobia was everywhere and as like white Americans we were told Islam was going to ruin our lives, you know? And then, you know, when Donald Trump became president, the enemy shifted. And it's like now the enemy is the immigrant from Mexico or South America. You know, these are the immigrants. They're coming to steal your jobs, they're going to ruin your lives. And the interesting thing to me is that because ICE is an agency that was founded on xenophobia and racism, it's so so easily able to change focus along with whatever convenient enemy the government now says we have.
0: Yeah, because it's never the immigrants from Western Europe. It's
1: never the immigrants from Germany. Exactly. It's never that. It's always, you know, a heavily racialized other that you know, is a threat to our way of life and sense of self and being. And it's just interesting how easily ICE is able to roll with those punches, you mm-hmm. know? How the shifting focus of which immigrant is the most evil changes or whatever. And ICE is like, yeah, yeah, yeah we're doing that too. And it really goes to show it's because ICE is made up of people working these jobs, you know, who have all this power and no one's really checking them and they are just as influenced by the media and the zeitgeist of what's happening. And that affects their perceptions of who the real threat is, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's really interesting because in that way it's institutionalized, right? And it's reinforced by our institution and our government, but also it's just individual people who are also affected by their own racism and bigotry and mm-hmm. they have this power to actually ruin people's lives because of it yeah it's like very um multifaceted the way that like the state and the individual reinforce each other in that fear of other mm-hmm. yeah and then i don't know i just i i think too it's like we never got rid of the islamophobia obviously like that's still here Right. Yeah. So it's just all, all the things, all the people who aren't the white Americans, you know? And, like, ICE's real stated purpose seems to be trying to maintain the white
0: purity of the United States. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's there seems no other reason. If they're not making us safer at all, mm-hmm. and, and even people within the government are like, this is a wasted, stupid agency. Like... <laughs> right. There seems to be one thing left that it's good for. Right, it's eugenics. It's always eugenics. (laughs) Preserving the the
1: white supremacy of the United States. It's a white supremacy institution. And yeah, it's pretty gnarly. I I just think it is interesting. I want to do this episode because, uh, yeah, the idea of abolishing ICE has kind of disappeared from the forefront of people's minds recently. And I do think that it's important, you know, uh, I saw somebody on Twitter a little while ago say, "You know, a cab includes ice." Yes. Yes, and they're cops. They're cops. They're the, you know, they're the only cops for whom racism is codified. I mean, they're not actually because the regular cops' racism is a
0: codified part of the job. I was
1: gonna say they're the only ones, but I'm like, no, the I, other police are
0: based on a history of racism too. It's no different. It was, it was, it's, it was funny to me when even the regular cops. Ice. The I ice know, cups. yeah. That's bad. That's bad. And I do remember
1: because LA, Los Angeles is a sanctuary city. Um, so we were one of the cities where we were like, Yeah, our cops aren't working with ice, we're not deporting people. Mm. And I remember during the Trump presidency, this was a huge point of contention and part of the reason why Donald tra- Trump hates Los Angeles and hates California so much because L.A. was like, no, nah, we're not doing that. Which is pretty wild because L.A.P.D. is notoriously racist and horrible. Oh,
0: terrible.
1: Right? Like, our mayor does
0: not give a fuck about yeah, people. What is the meme Google uh, L.A.? Uh- Police gangs. Oh yeah, the L.A. Sheriff's Department gangs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know our our police are horrible.
1: So yeah, it is interesting too. Like I wonder what that dynamic is, where even they can look at ICE and go fuck that. Yeah, like I to me they're one and the same. But it's very interesting. Do you have any other thoughts before we wrap up our episode on ICE?
0: Ooh, fuck them. Fuck them. Fuck ICE. (laughs) Those are the final thoughts. (laughs) Fuck ICE. Thank you so much for listening, Uh, you can uh, listen here for free, you can support us on Patreon uh, at patreon.com slash scared. and for $2 a month you can uh, get bonus apps, you can leave us uh, messages, which we may answer on air, Um, but you do not have support us in any other way except for with your lovely little ears listening to us now. Thanks again.